Well, my name's Clayton Walker. I'm the pastor here of the City Church and honored that you could join us today. And whether we've met or especially if we have met, my guess is if I were to die, you'd be devastated. Like I know you'd be sobbing, like you would just be so upset. Why God? He was so young, so, so young. Like how could something like that happen to him? Like he's so young, like that's just strange. It's just weird. Like I know you'd be devastated, uh, but I'm sure at my funeral, there would be some laughs at my expense. Like I'm not naive. Like I know I get it. Like I know who I'm friends with. Okay. I know my brothers. All right. I, I know if my wife Darby lets Brandon and Mark anywhere near that funeral, it, it's going to be funny. And, and if they are doing my funeral, if Brandon and Mark are doing it, you should go. Okay. It will be one of the most entertaining funerals you've ever been to in your life. Okay. You'll probably laugh just as much as you cry. But let me ask you this. What would you want said about you at your funeral? What would you want written about you on your tombstone? You see, in this series, we're talking about death. We're talking about our tombstone. Why? Because Solomon, one of the wisest men to ever live, according to the scripture said this in Ecclesiastes chapter seven, verse four, he said, a wise person thinks a lot about death. A wise person doesn't just consider it. No, a wise person thinks a lot about death while a fool only thinks about having a good time. A fool, Solomon says, doesn't think about death very much. Just only thinks about the here and now. Doesn't think about the consequences of their decisions. Doesn't think about death. But a wise person thinks a lot about death. When you die, me or someone like me will probably be doing your funeral. And probably 24, 48 hours after you die, they'll be meeting with your family and your closest friends. And they will ask, what do you want said about them at their funeral? When I meet with families, I'll, I'll say, what were some of the things that were special to you about them? What, what were some of the funny things about that person? What would you want said about you? at your funeral. What would you want written about you on your tombstone? If there were three things, short, simple statements that could be put on your tombstone, if you had a choice, what would you choose? Now I'm not talking about like writing it all out and scheduling out your service and all the songs that you want and telling all your family, you know, writing a script for them to say what you want them to say about your funeral. No, no, no. I'm talking about, are you living in a way right now that will cause your family and your closest friends to say the things about you that you would want said about you, that they would put the three things about you on your tombstone that you would want them to write? Or is there a gap? Is there a gap between what you once said and what will actually be said? Are you living today? Are you making decisions today that will reinforce what you once said? Or is there a gap between what you once said and what will actually be said? In this series, Tombstone, we're working backwards to make sure that what we once said about us is actually said. We're going to close the gap. We're going to talk about the three things that I want written about me on my tombstone, what I would want people to say about me and why I think they should be, these three things should be the things that you once said about you. We're calling these three things, the three stepping stones to your tombstone, because we want to hit these things. We want to step on these in this life while I'm living so that they're actually said about me on my tombstone. So last week we said, I want it to be said about me on my tombstone. And I think you should too, that he loved Jesus. And we talked about why. Here's the next one. Here's the second one. Here's the second stepping stone. What I want to be written about me on my tombstone. He loved his bride. He loved 
his bride. Now, if you're single, this is going to be great preparation for you one day in your marriage, specifically if you're a man. If you're not wanting to get married, if you've been divorced, you've been burned, uh, then my guess is as a follower of Jesus, you'd probably still say you want people in our church to have great, godly, healthy marriages. You, you would love that to be true. You would wish that for other people in our church. You should want people in our church to have healthy marriages, even if that's not where you're at right now, if that's not the stage of life that you're in. But if you're dating and interested in getting engaged, if you're engaged, or even if you're newly married and you didn't get a chance to go through premarital counseling, I would invite you to also sign up for our ready to wed marriage class. You can sign up for that on our app right now. If you download the City Church Lubbock app, that's the way to stay connected with us and register for different things. But, but that class is gonna be starting in the next month. And so if you're dating and like you're planning on getting engaged, you're engaged, uh, you need premarital counseling, or if you're newly married and you didn't do premarital counseling, I would challenge you to sign up for this class. It's gonna start in a month. It's called Ready to Wed. But regardless of where you find yourself today in your relationship status, if you will, this is for you. God has something for you today, I promise. So why? Why would I want it to be said about me that I love my bride? Well, we always turn to the scripture when we answer these kinds of questions, when we ask them and when we answer them. And so in Genesis, we find that all of creation is good. God looks at everything that he's created and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he looks at the man that he's created and he says, it's not good. And some of the women in here are probably like, amen. <laughs> They're not good. They're not good for me. They're not good for anybody, right? And so God looks at the man and he says, it's not good. There's something not right here, which is interesting because everything else in the created order, according to God is good. It's, it's very good. And for the man in particular, he has all of creation for his enjoyment. He has a job that he's been given by God. So he has a job, he has purpose in naming the animals and having dominion over the earth. He's got this wealth of food. He's got a perfect paradise environment, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't satisfying to the man. And God sees this and says, it's not good. If you were to put this in today's terms, men, Adam had all the money. He had all the power. He had all the food, all the toys, all the pets he could possibly want, right? And it wasn't enough. It didn't satisfy him. And God says, it's not good. You see, here's the first reason why I want it to be said about me that he loved his bride is because number one, men are designed for partnership. Men are designed for partnership. Now this is true of women too, but we're kind of talking about this from the angle of a man since, since I'm a man and I'm saying I want it to be said about me that I love my bride, but I promise there's gonna be plenty in here for both men and women, husbands and wives, but men are designed for partnership. I wanna show you about what I'm talking about. So let's go to Genesis chapter two. This is a great time to uh, grab the app, the City Church Lubbock, open that, follow along with us. The verses, the points are all there so that you can email yourself those notes later but men are designed for partnership. So let's go to the scripture and find out where we see this. Genesis chapter two, starting in verse 18, it says this. Then the Lord God said, it's not good. Everything else is good, but something's not good. God says for the man to be alone, it's not good for men to be alone. I will make a helper, God says, who is just right for him. Some translations say that's just suitable for him. I will make a suitable helper 
for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground, all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock and all the birds of the sky and all the wild animals. But still there was no helper just right. There was no suitable helper companion for the man. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of the man's ribs and closed up the opening. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib and he brought her to the man. At last, the man exclaimed, yes, yes. At last, he said, this one is bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. I've had all these other animals, right? For companionship, but it's not like me. They're not like me. I can't have a relationship with all of these other creatures. And so Adam says, this one's like me, bone from my bone and flesh from my flesh. She will be called woman for she was taken from man. God says, I will make a helper suitable for the man. Now here's what you've got to understand in Hebrew, this word helper, that's just right. That's suitable for the man, this helper in Hebrew is actually the same term that's used for God in other places of the Old Testament. So the Hebrew definition of the word helper doesn't refer to status, value, or worth. It doesn't refer to someone who's in a weaker position. It's actually quite the opposite if you wanna know the real meaning of the word. The real meaning of the word is talking about someone who comes to the aid of, someone who comes to help. So if anything, guys, if anything, men, it's actually reverse. We're the ones in the weaker position. We were the needy ones. We were the ones who were alone. And God says, it's not good. You need companionship. We are the needy ones. Men need a wife. Men need a wife. Now, I'm not so sure women need us. <laughs> you know, sometimes I get the picture, I get the idea that they would be just fine without us, maybe even better off without us. Now, I'm obviously joking, okay? But Darby needs me, you know, to kill spiders and fix the internet and play with her hair and, and, and other things, okay? And other things. We won't go into all that right now, but other things as well, all right? But if we can make up a word to describe this relationship, this dynamic between a husband and a wife, between men and women, I'm gonna make up a word, okay? I'm gonna put three words together. You ready for this? I know if you're a teacher, this is gonna probably crawl all over you, all right? Or if you're kind of a grammar Nazi or uh, an English major or something like that, like yeah, this might just crawl all over you, okay? But I've put three words together into one to describe to you what this relationship is, all right? This is a counter partner mint, okay? Counterpartnerment, all right? A counterpart, a partner, and a compliment. Okay? A counterpart, a partner, and a compliment. What do I mean by that? I mean, a counterpart is someone who's like me bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This person is like me. And so they're suitable for me to have a relationship with, to have a companion with. So, so they're like me. They're a partner. So they're beside me and they're a compliment to me. They're not like me. A counter partner meant like me, beside me, not like me. 
like me, but then Adam looks her up and down and is like, but she's not like me in the best way possible. This is awesome, right? Yes, okay, yes, she's like me, but she's not like me. And so Adam says, at last, someone who's like me, but not like me. And he looks her up and down and says, she is not like me in the best way possible. She's a partner. She's taken from his side, not from his head to rule over him or to control him, not from his feet for him to step on or to treat harshly or to dominate. No, she's taken from his side and God makes another side, someone to be beside you side by side on the same team as a partner, counterpart partner, but then also a compliment. We need each other. She's not like me in all the best ways. She's a compliment. She's not like me. And so we're not independent. We're not dependent. We're interdependent. We need each other because she's not like me. I need her. And everything that she's good at and everything that she's great at and everything that makes her different and unique that's not like me, I need. And she needs me. We're interdependent. Like me, beside me, not like me. Counter, partner, men. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, Peter says it like this. In the same way, you husbands must give honor to your wives. Treat your wife with understanding as you live together on the same team. She may be weaker than you are. And here in the Greek, it's talking about just about physically. It's someone who's, uh, who's smaller, uh, who's, who's, who's not as strong. And, and the only idea really here in mind is typically men are just bigger and, and stronger. All right. So she's weaker than you are, but she is your equal partner in God's gift of new life. Treat her as you should. So watch this. So your prayers will not be hindered. Men, the way you treat your life can affect, wife can affect your relationship with God. In fact, it can hinder your prayers if you're not treating your wife in a godly way. So even Peter is saying she's weaker, she's different. Women are typically more compassionate and understanding and nurturing. They're typically kinder, right? So, so they're different. They're, they're not like us, but we're to honor these differences as a partner, someone that's side by side with us. We're to honor these differences and lift them up and celebrate them because they're not like us. But then at the same time, they're our equal partner. We're side by side. So she's like me, not like me, but beside me, side by side. Side. And so as men, we have this inherent desire for this counterpartment because literally there's a part of us, there's a side of us that's missing, that's been taken from us and that is only found in our other side in a relationship with a wife. So men are designed for partnership. Secondly, though, we learn in Genesis chapter two, that men are designed for pursuit, to pursue, to pursue their wife. Watch this very next verse, Genesis chapter two, verse 24. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united in to one. 
Who's the one leaving their parents and going after the other one? It's the man. The man leaves his parents and he goes to the woman. He goes to be joined to her, to be united to her. So men in God's design are designed to be the pursuer. Now, there are elements of pursuing each other for sure. But in God's design, men are designed to be the primary pursuer in the relationship. All the way back to the very beginning when a man leaves his father and mother and he goes to be united to his wife. Now here's the other interesting thing here. These words joined and united in Hebrew are so much deeper than the act of sex or even a wedding ceremony. This isn't just talking about some sort of legal ceremony or a one day kind of event. It's so much more, it's so much deeper than that. The, the, the Hebrew for united, for being joined together, first of all, carries the idea of an ongoing, continuing relationship. This is a daily pursuit. That's what these words mean, to be joined together, to be united together to one another. It's an ongoing, daily pursuit. It's an ongoing relationship. It also carries the idea of sticking to each other like glue. That's what the words literally mean. To be united to someone, to be joined to them, is to be stuck together with them like glue. This is the idea of exclusivity and intimacy in a marriage relationship. Think about it for a second. You ever had a post-it note that you use over and over and over again? You, you write on it and you, you stick it on something, right? And then you take it and you want to stick it on something else. And then you take it and you stick it on something else. What happens to that post-it note? What happens to the stickiness in the post-it note? If you try to use it over and over and over again, what happens to the tape that you try to reuse over and over and over again? What eventually happens? It loses its stickiness in a relationship that's intimacy. You see, a marriage relationship is the only place for anything sexual to be expressed. In fact, in Matthew chapter five, when Jesus is talking about sexual immorality, he uses a word that in Greek means to be stimulated by anything or anyone outside of your spouse. That's sexual immorality. Any kind of stimulation from something or someone outside of your spouse. You see, you're supposed to be joined together with your spouse and your spouse only. And in this sense, the word is definitely talking about this physical connection where the sexual part of a relationship is to be experienced in a marriage, in the covenant of marriage. Because if you get joined to someone and then you rip it apart and then you get joined to someone else and then you rip that apart and you get joined to someone else and you rip that apart, what happens? It loses its stickiness. It starts losing its intimacy in a relationship. And that's why it's so tough if you've had sex with someone outside of the marriage relationship. That's why it's so tough to get over that relationship. You got stuck together with them like glue and then you ripped it apart. That's why it's so painful to lose that relationship when you've been joined together. Because these words united 
joined together. The way that God designed the marriage relationship to work is to stick to someone like glue. And it's ongoing, continuing pursuit. You know, it's interesting that there's one whole book of the Bible that talks about the pursuit and the relationship between a man and a woman. I'm talking about the book of Song of Solomon. Now, if you were to read this book, it will make you blush. I promise you, because you're going to read it and you're going to be like, is that saying what I think it's saying? And if you're thinking that, then the answer is probably yes, that is what it's talking about. Okay. I promise you, if you go and read the book of Song of Solomon, you're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be like, this is graphic. Like I, I, is this, this is in the Bible. Like I can't believe this. It's so strong that scholars at one point began to try to make it be this picture of the church and God. The problem I have with that is when you read this book, it is so graphically sexual. That would be extremely weird. I'm just gonna be honest with you. It would be weird. And so other scholars have said, no, there's no way. There's no way. I mean, maybe in some secondary, like generally speaking kind of way, but no, this book is sexual and graphic in nature. It's talking about the relationship between a man and a woman, primarily. The gift of love, the gift of sex in a marriage relationship. And this man is pursuing this woman all throughout Song of Solomon. They're pursuing each other, but the man pursues the woman with words of encouragement, adoration. He builds her up. He tells her that he's thinking about her and he can't stop thinking about her, that he can't wait to be with her, how she's unique and stands out to him among other women. He pursues her and she feels loved by him. She feels pursued. She feels loved. And here's what she writes about love and the value and worth of this love between her and this man at the end of Song of Solomon. And these verses I'm about to read to you are the verses that Darby and I picked to be read at our wedding. It's our verse for our relationship. And so she says this about this love connection that she has with this man. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death, this love that we have between us. It's as strong as death. It's jealousy, unyielding as the grave. It's exclusive. It's intimate. It burns like blazing fire. Do you hear the passion here? Like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench this love. Rivers cannot sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Do you hear the value of this love? the worth, how worthy this love is and how much, how much she feels loved. My guess is, is some of you, as you read that and as you hear about some of these things, you're like, that's, man, that's great. But that's not my experience. I haven't felt like that. I haven't experienced that. You see, God's design is the ideal, but we live in the real. God's design is ideal, we, we live in the real. And so some of you, I know, as you hear some of these things, it's, it's difficult, it's hard. Maybe you're single and you desire this kind of relationship or your marriage is struggling or maybe you've even been divorced. We live in the real. Sometimes when we aren't experiencing this kind of love that we were designed to experience in a marriage relationship, 
we start looking elsewhere for it, right? And whether we say it or not, here's what we're saying. The grass is greener over there, but that's always a lie. The grass is never greener over there. Husbands, wives, here's what you've got to understand this morning. The grass is greener where you water it. The grass is always greener where you water it. When the grass is dying, do you blame the grass? No, you don't blame the grass. You start watering it. You start fertilizing it. You start reseeding. You're you're doing whatever it takes to bring the grass back, to bring life back to the grass. You don't blame the grass. It's not the grass's fault. It's your fault. You let the grass die. The grass is never greener over there. The grass is always greener where you water it. And I know some of you are like, but you don't understand. Like my spouse, like this grass you're talking about, like it's tough. It's tough. It's dying. In Genesis chapter three, the very next chapter after the one we're reading, after we read about the ideal, we get the real. Adam needs sin. God lays out the curses of sin. And some of those curses for sin mean a battle for control in a relationship. The husband wants to control and dominate his wife. The wife wants to control and dominate her husband. There's this battle for control. The curse of sin skews our God-given desire for one another and actually turns it into where we find and seek after identity. Instead of finding it first and foremost in our relationship with God, we start to find it in the arms of a man or a woman. And we think that will satisfy us. Sin, the curse of sin, changes our pursuit, men, into passivity. We become passive. We become apathetic. We get lazy. And we begin to believe that it's our wife's job to pursue us. We get passive. It's the curse of sin. Sin always brings death. And when you're experiencing this, this tough dying grass, when you're living in the real, what's the answer? What's the answer for the gap between the real and the ideal, God's design? What's the answer for that gap? The answer to the gap is always the gospel. The answer for the gap between what's ideal and what's real is always the gospel. In Ephesians chapter five, Paul tells husbands to love their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then Paul tells wives, wives, honor and respect your husbands. Now here's what's interesting about these verses in the Greek language. They are unconditional commands. So here's what this means. When Paul says, husbands, love your wives, wives, respect your husbands. These are unconditional commands, meaning they are not conditioned upon someone's performance. So I don't love my wife if she performs well. She doesn't honor and respect me if I perform well. No, these commands are unconditional. They're not conditioned upon a performance. In the same way, the gospel is not conditional. It's not conditioned on your performance. 
The scripture says in Romans five, verse eight, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God sent Jesus. He demonstrated his love for us and sent Jesus to die for us on the cross in our place for our sin in spite of our performance. We did nothing to earn it or to deserve it. It was the grace of God. We got what we didn't deserve. God demonstrated his love for us. Sending his son Jesus to die for his enemies, people who didn't deserve. And when he was being nailed to that cross, Jesus cried out to his father, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God's love for you is not conditioned upon your performance. It's called grace. And so it's the gospel that always fills in the gap between what's ideal, the righteous, the holiness of God, the design of God, and the ideal, what, or the real, what we live in, our sin and the curse of sin. It's the gospel that always fills in that gap. And so watch this, Christian, the gospel calls you to partnership and pursuit in spite of performance. The gospel, Christian, husbands, wives, if you're a follower of Jesus, the gospel calls you to partnership and pursuit in spite of performance. This is the answer that for the gap between what's ideal, God's design, and the real that we live in. The gospel says Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us in spite of our performance. The gospel calls you to partnership, to pursuit in spite of their performance. And the gospel is what will change your wife's heart, your husband's heart. It's the only thing that can change your wife's heart, your husband's heart. It's the gospel. That's why it's the answer. The grass is tough. The grass is dying. The grass is greener where you water it. And it's the gospel that's going to give you the power to partnership, to pursue in spite of performance. So loving my wife in spite of her performance is an act of worship. It shows the gospel's taken root in my heart and it preaches the gospel to my wife, to a watching world, and to my kids. Wives, honoring, respecting your husband in spite of his performance is an act of worship. It shows the gospel has taken root in your heart and it preaches the gospel to your husband, to a watching world, and to your kids. The best way to love your kids is to love their mom, is to love their dad. We see this every time we get on an airplane when we're told that if we have children to put your mask on before you put their mask on. Why? Because if you make the mistake of trying to put their mask on, which is very instinctual for a parent, you could end up killing both of you. But if you will put your mask on, then and only then will you be able to put their mask on. Loving your, their mom, loving their dad is the best way to love your kids. But this is the design. This is the ideal. We live in the real. And so if you're single, if you're struggling in your marriage, if you're divorced, if you're a widow, we look to Jesus. We look to Jesus because in the cross, we find mercy for the gap 
between the ideal and the real. In the resurrection, we find power to fill the gap between the ideal and the real. In our church family, we find support and encouragement and prayer and accountability. And in the counselors, the scripture says we find wisdom. In many counselors, there is wisdom. The design is ideal, but there's grace for the real. And it's the gospel that fills the gap. The big idea in this series is that if it won't matter when I'm dead, I'm not going to let it master me while I'm alive. It doesn't mean that there aren't some things I'm going to do for fun and enjoyment right, right, right now in this life. But what it does mean, if it's not going to matter when I'm dead, I'm not going to let it master me. I'm not going to let it dominate me. No, no, no. I want my affections, my passion, my, the, the bulk of my energy and time to go to the things that are going to matter when I'm dead. And so the whole idea of living in light of your tombstone is this statement is live for the things now that are going to matter when you're dead. My guess is I'm going to wish that I had pursued my wife more on that last day. And there's nothing wrong with these things, but I'm probably not going to wish I spent more time hunting or playing golf or working. Nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves, but those things aren't gonna matter to me when I'm dying or when I'm dead. And so I'm not gonna let them master me while I'm alive. I'm probably going to wish I pursued my wife more. So husbands, challenge for you today is this, breathe life into your wife until your last breath. Breathe life into your wife until your last breath. A little over a month ago, I did a funeral for a man named Mark Langford. Mark's wife is Tracy and she'll be here most likely in the 1130 service. As I told you last week, Mark was a faithful man in our church. He loved Jesus. But you know, the other thing that struck me when I met with his family, when I met with his wife, is that Tracy said he never called her by her first name. He always called her babe or baby. He treated her with kindness and compassion. She had MS. And she said that he always took good care of her. And she said, I always felt loved. That's what this man's wife said about him after he died. Men, I don't know about you, I want my wife to be able to say those exact same things. That I treated her with kindness, gentleness, that I loved her, that I took care of her. And you know, I think you can, you can see it. You don't even, sometimes you don't even have to hear it. You can see it on a woman's face. I think you can oftentimes see in their face and in their smile what their marriage is like. This past week, I had a conversation with a man named Andrea who works on my cars. And uh, he's from South Africa, so he has this real intense accent. I love it. And he talks real fast and real loud. And he said, Clayton, Clayton, I was, I was talking with your wife this week. And man, I just want you to know, do you like my South African accent? He's like, man, Clayton, she, had, she has the most amazing smile, that woman. She's got the most amazing smile. She's got a great spirit. You just, you're, you're so lucky. You're so blessed. You got a real winner right there. And I said, Andrea, you are absolutely right. And she does. She has an incredible smile. She has an amazing spirit. 
And it makes me so proud of her. And it makes me thankful for our marriage. You know, I love coming home to her. And I love when she's gone, her coming home to me. And I believe that's possible. No matter how far gone you think your marriage is, because the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that same resurrection power that brings life to dead places lives in you. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have resurrection power. And that power that raised Christ from the dead can bring life, can bring love back into your marriage. Men, what needs to change in your life so that it could be said of you, he loved his bride. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that right now, your gospel, the gospel of Jesus would fill in the gap between the ideal, the design and what's real. We need you, Father. Single moms, single dads, those who've been divorced, those who are widows, they, they need you, they need your help, they need you to fill in the gaps for what's missing in the design. Those of us who are married, we need you. We need your help because it's not easy. We're selfish. The curse of sin has marred us in the marriage relationship. God, we need your help to love like Christ loved the church, to honor and to respect in spite of performance. And so God, as we sing, would your spirit do a mighty work in our hearts, soften our hearts, bring reconciliation. And God, may it be true of us, may it be said of us, of the husbands in our church, that we loved our bride. In Jesus' name, amen.